founders. Welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. Okay, founders, welcome back to the podcast. Today, we are joined by Ethan Couch, co-founder of Yellowhammer Brewery in Huntsville, Alabama. It's not often you find a brewery in the top 5,000 fastest growing companies in America, but Ethan and his co-founder, Don, are growing their business like wildfire in Alabama. Obviously, they serve insanely good beer, namely premium ales, lagers, and southern twists on Belgian and German beers, but what might come as a surprise to you is that Yellowhammer Brewery was also named a 2018 Best Places to Work in Alabama. Ethan has found a way to continue to drive strong culture throughout his organization, even with such rapid growth. So founders, grab yourself a beer and listen up. Welcome, <laughs> Ethan, to the podcast. Thank you for being here, buddy. Hey, thank you for having me. Yes, sir. All right, let's kick it off how we always do. For you, what were the series of events that led you to what you're doing now? Yeah, when we got started, uh, we just celebrated our 10-year anniversary. So um, 10 years ago, uh, a little bit more than that, we, um, you know, it was right before the craft beer boom hit uh, the Southeast. And um, we had one brewery in town. And uh, some of my friends and I were like, you know, this is, they're kind of spotty, a little hit or miss, you know, it might be kind of fun to see if we could do something different. And um and uh, I thought it would be fun from a business perspective. That's where I was coming from with it. And uh, I do a lot of real estate and uh, noticed that they had made some zoning changes and things like that, that would allow breweries to go in different parts of town. And, and uh, so me and the other co-founders uh, got together and, uh, you know, uh, did a brainstorm and said, hey, I think we could make this work. Uh, we got a guy who can brew really good beer. We got marketing guy, we got kind of a tech guru. And then I came at it from a side. And so we thought we had a bunch of moving parts that could work well together. And and then uh, we started it and uh, it was on a shoestring budget um, and kind of like a kind of a industrial working class side of town. And, um, and then, you know, we kind of hit it right at the right time. Two other breweries opened up at the same time we did roughly within a six month period in our town. And so then all of a sudden went from one brewery to four really fast. And then that started the wave here. And now we've got like 13. So wow. Yeah. That's huge. Yeah. So were you, a? it sounds like it, but were you a kind of a big, craft beer fan and and that's what got you into this or, or yeah what? I, i'm i'm definitely a foodie and and i'm really a, a nerd when it comes to uh to beers and alcohol in general just anything that that you know people put a best their best effort into I, i'm in I, i'm interested in that so mm. and uh, uh i grew up uh, when i went to college uh, i was a bartender and so got exposed to a lot of different uh, drinks and craft beers there and uh, definitely had an affinity for it. Never brewed it before we started the business, but um, but yeah, I came at it more from a "Hey, this would be fun" standpoint. Wow. Yeah. So, was your initial idea that this would be just kind of a side gig for you that'd be fun to do, or did you already imagine this is going to be big, a full time focus, that kind of thing? Yeah, this was definitely a side project for us. All had other job careers, and uh, you know we all knew, Hey, this might become something one day. 
but, but you know we've got some time on our hands nights and weekends is how it started and uh, at that time the laws were such that uh we you didn't have a tap room it was just distributed so we were just making beer and shipping it out once a week and that was it and wow. that was enough for us to have some fun and uh to learn a lot about the business and but you know it, it grew rapidly from that point on so we had wow. to learn fast and uh, fail fast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> why do you think? Why do you think it caught on so fast right away? Yeah, I think um, having that uh, that kind of synergy with the other brewers made some some immediate competition, and then all of a sudden, the media latched onto it as like, "Hey, there's something changing here," and and uh, and we had this movement called "Free the Hops," and that was a big part of it. They had just changed the laws to where you could brew beer in Alabama more than six <laughs> percent. Whoa! Yeah, so that opened up. Namely, IPAs, which were at the time, you know, the the fastest growing beer and definitely the yeah. strongest still, I believe, uh, in the market. And so that that definitely opened up the floodgates for the opportunity um, to make craft beer, which majority of craft beer is over six percent. And sure. that happened in two thousand and nine. That law changed, and then so two thousand ten we started, and uh, so that was so before two thousand nine, you could really only drink light beer. Is yeah. that what I'm hearing? <laughs> yeah. yeah, we have a wow. famous politician who said um, he, he was fighting against the bill, and he said, "You know, Budweiser drink good, don't it?" And uh, that was his quote. And uh, it is, I mean, it, you know, if memes were a thing back then, that would have been all over the place. But uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Uh, so, in those early days, how did you strike a balance between having a full time career and moonlighting this growing? pretty rapidly growing demand on your on the business you started. Yeah, that, that was tough. And, um, you know, I did have some free time on my hands and we all had, you know, different skills and the you know, different amounts of time we could put towards it. And, uh, but luckily it was, you know, just enough for us to get through that first year or two. And then uh, as we were growing, that's when it became more difficult. We had, we had one of our partners basically uh, retire from his other career and become full-time at a brewery. And then we all kind of, uh, three, three other of us fell, fell suit as well. And, um, and basically transitioned over and, and a lot of us still have our other pursuits and things like that. But, uh, for the most part, you know, there's two of us here now, Don and I that are, uh, full-time at the brewery. So was that a, a, an easy no brainer decision at the time, or was that a difficult decision to make? Now, I think it's always a difficult decision. You got so many factors. Um, you, you, you know, we had long-standing careers, and you transition over, and uh, and so you know you got family to consider there, and um, and uh, retirement and things like that. And you know, we were coming at it. We weren't. I was the youngest of us, you know, <laughs> and uh, I was about thirty-five at the time. So. Um, you know, we still had a lot of, uh, a lot of years left to work. And, um, and so that it made it a little bit more difficult. None of us were ready to just retire. And, and at the same time, you know, now we're 10 years in and, and it's like, okay, what's the next step, you know? And, and, uh, you know, we're, we're definitely in that, what's the next phase for us. And, uh, but as a business or oh, yeah. other well, businesses? just like from a personal standpoint, it's like, you know, um, as we kind of our sixties, fifties and sixties guys are like, you know, Hey, I'm going to hang my hat up and, uh, 
you know, watch you guys from the sidelines kind of thing. So, yeah, yeah, super interesting. Uh, so now I'm curious about the actual product you make. Yeah, I know nothing about that business in that sense, other than I feel like it's got to be challenging to actually create your own new beer that is, you know, really great and everybody enjoys. And that, so, was that how did you guys develop the actual product that you sold? Yeah, uh, this was key. The, our, our original head brewer, um, he was big on Belgian and German styles. And, and so he did a lot of traditional brewing, and then he did some creative stuff as well. So he had a lot of good recipes for classic beers. And uh, mm. and that's kind of how we got known was, you know, kind of a slight twist on some classic uh, German and, and Belgian style beers. And uh, so we, he had a good foundation to start. And then, you know, the craft beer industry has shifted so much and luckily we have a head brewer right now um, who's younger and extremely creative and you know staying with the times we're making sour beers and hazy ipas and wow and uh but it takes i mean these guys they, they live it and uh they they study this every day there's a huge community that shares information and recipes and we get a, you know we do a lot of research publication wise and uh you know it's a lot of studying a lot of work and a lot of trial and error um you know we we kind of learned the hard way okay well, let's not make a big batch of this experimental beer um because it might be sitting there yeah uh, so do a lot of small batch stuff and uh do, do you know test it out in the tap room and in 2013 the tap room laws changed and you know so that we could have a tap room and so that's now kind of our experimental grounds and we're known for having a, a large amount of beers on tap so we have 20 plus beers on Whoa. tap at any time and uh we've done over three or four hundred different styles since we opened up and um so we we love being creative and uh love trying new things and and it's kind of fun because you know our our most famous beers change are like our best-selling beers changes from year to year sometimes and uh and you just never know what's going to happen how the market's going to respond and yeah for you in those early years, if you can think back to, it sounds like what, 2009, 2010, something like that. What what did you find most challenging in terms of what the business was needing or needing from you? Uh, what was the most challenging in the early years? Yeah, uh, in the early days, you know, you're, you're never well-funded, you know, in a lot of those scenarios. And, and we, we bootstrapped it and we all put the money in the beginning. And, and, um, and so cash became a quick issue. Um, luckily, you know, we were just a manufacturer at that point, so we didn't have a lot of retail interaction. And so our overhead was lower than it, than it is now. And, uh, so that helped out, but, um, I think, uh, you know, you know, you, you make a lot of mistakes and, uh, sure. early on and, um, you know, whether it's finding the right vendors, um, you know, understanding how shipping works, you know, uh, ways to save money on those fronts, uh, you know, there's people who devote their whole lives to the, that kind of career of just finding the best price for things. And that's something when you don't have a lot of time, you may take the first offer that comes down the pike. And 
And uh, so, yeah, management uh, at that time was difficult. Um, and we were four guys making one decision collectively. That was, you know, that's always a challenge. You know, sure. true, true democracy is difficult. And uh, we eventually gravitated to, um, you know, me being a manager and making a lot of these decisions and directing different managers and things like that. Um, and so, you know, in those days, things just moved a little bit slower and more cautiously. And uh, probably to our detriment, but um, but we gained some momentum as uh, years went on. Mm. That's really cool. So it sounds like at the beginning, you guys organically came together. Like you said, you had a democracy. Everybody weighs in. We make decisions together. But as the business grew fast, it was probably hard to keep up with the amount of time that might take to yes. collectively come to an agreement. Yep. So did you guys move towards more specialty roles? where, hey, you're kind of over this, and so you get decision power here, and you're over this, you get decision power here? Yeah, that's that's uh, quickly how it became. And, um, and you know, you still run into headbutting, you know, throughout the, the course of that. But, but uh, you know, we muscled through a lot of that. And, uh, you know, we were we were definitely moving in the same direction. And that's, that's one thing that I, I try and harp on a lot is like, okay, we all got to get on the stage quickly and uh, make the best decision um, moving, you know, based on this goal, you know, this one goal. And, and, um, but, uh, but yeah, um, we all had different talents. And so we basically became the, you know, overhead of, of that uh, or the manager of that section of the business. Yeah. Yeah. Man, I, I'm curious. As was this the first time that each of you had run like your own built your own uh, business from scratch, or had some of you had experience in that before? Yeah, I had a, a little bit of experience with a small my small real estate company, but um, everybody else had different kinds of experiences. They worked for larger corporations or um, government contractors, things like that, uh, that had a way different, you know, they had HR and, and, you know, these, these departments that, you know, are, you know, manage all employees and, and, uh, right. it's very structured and, and we were just, you know, kind of learning all that, you know, from a small scale up and, you know, you learn so much on that front. Um, luckily, you know, we all had good intentions and, and, um, and, you know, treated our employees well. And, and that that's been part of our success, I think, is that we've been able to, to grow as a team and keep a, t- a solid team together. Yeah. I'm curious um, if, if it's not too vulnerable of a question, but I'm, you know, startups, you know, we, we all know they have such a high rate of failure, right? They end up hitting something unforeseen, or, uh, you know, COVID hits, let's say you started, you started the business then, or you guys started the business on the back of the recession. Yes. Was there any moments that you weren't sure the business was going to succeed? And if so, how did you overcome it? Yeah, there's, there's been several uh, times when uh, we were on the brink of, uh, of basically having to call it quits or, or do something drastic and and I think every every business does see this, and um, and you know we've been very fortunate to to have relationships with our bank, relationships with mm. uh, investors that uh, you know you know basically can say, hey, this is what's going on. You know we're we're running into cash flow issues. What can we do? And um, you know. We got good products. I think we got a good team. I think we're almost, you know, turning this corner, whatever it may be. And um, you know, uh, you know, as a, as young business owners, we didn't understand, 
you know, growth is, you know, it, it'll suck capital. <laughs> oh yeah. And, uh, and we were basically on a 45 degree angle, you know, growing 50 to a hundred percent a year and, uh, managing that's just, is difficult for anybody. And we were small, so it made a difference, um, that, you know, the, the numbers weren't huge, so it didn't scare a lot of people, um, from helping us. Uh, but you know, without a few key people helping us out at certain times, we, you know, it would have been a memory. So. Wow. Yeah. It makes me think of two things. One, uh, is the story uh, of Phil Knight and Nike in the early days. Mm -hmm. And what was so surprising to me because I'm not in that kind of business, but he was talking about the growth actually causing complications with the relationship with the bank. And he, you know, he didn't get it. He was like, listen, man, we're growing hundred percent every year. <laughs> like, why are you, why are you being this way? And they're like, well, you're not keeping any cash in the bank. Like, because that growth was requiring more cash to fuel the next growth. Right. Yes. And in their minds, he was dangerous, even though in his mind, he's like, I got a yeah. growing product. Like, what are you, what are you talking about? Right. Right. Um, which makes me think of the second thing you mentioned is the quality of relationships surrounding the business. Mm-hmm. That is not just the idea and the product or the service, yeah. but your investors, the bank, people in the community that know yeah. you and support you. Can you speak to that for a second? Like the importance of those building just really quality relationships around your business. Yeah. The, um, you know, the community uh, at large uh, is our lifeblood. Um, we're not a, um, a national supplier. So being a part of the community is such a huge thing for us. And I mean, we have fans who have been with us from day one and we have uh, bankers and investors that have been with us er from early on. And, uh, wow. and it's, it's made a huge difference because it's, uh, you know, that one person could turn into a hundred people being interested in your product. And I look at it, I look at a guest that comes in our doors that way. It's like, you know, this person could be the lifeblood of our business, you know, yeah. and, uh, one good review, one good, you know, comment, uh, could go a long way. And it, and it, it, it branches out like that, uh, oftentimes. And I see it like that. And I try and uh, talk to the staff about that. It's, it's not, uh, you're, you know, it's as well as serving beer with a smile, but at the same time, you know, you are the face of our brand and, and, and it's, you know, these relationships are what drive, you know, this whole brand. Absolutely. Well, you think about back in the day, most restaurants, they knew they had to take care of their people, but the negative impact was much smaller because the world that they lived in at the time, it might've been word of mouth. Like they maybe tell a few people I didn't have a good experience there. And what they were really watching out for or preparing for is what if like a food critic came in, right? right. Because mm-hmm. they represented an audience. They might go and tell a bunch of people that we're not good. But what's crazy for you guys now is with things like Yelp and social media and Google reviews and, and those kinds of things, each person is in a sense, a critic with a platform Yes, that you've got to either win over or at least not piss off and have them turn away customers. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's, you know, we've been super fortunate and, uh, even our bar staff, a lot of them have been with us for five plus years and, and, uh, and it, it goes a long way to keeping regulars and, to you know, just promoting that, that atmosphere of being welcome. You know? Yeah. 
Well, I'm curious on a different note, what was the business model back then? And has it changed now, especially with the ability to have a tap room? It did, did the, maybe the weight of it change in terms of how much was distribution and selling to markets or directly to consumers versus people coming in and buying from you directly? How, how is that? Yeah. So early on we were a hundred percent distribution, um, or we were a manufacturer shipping to distributors. And then 2013, we, we, uh, we opened up a small tap room, uh, in our warehouse It's the most hilarious thing ever. Like you walk in <laughs> and you're next, you're sitting next to our tanks and we're, we're mopping the floor and, uh, you know, from the day's work and, uh, everybody gets to see that. And that was kind of, uh, it was cute and fun. And for the customers, they, they loved it. They love seeing the inner workings of it. Yeah. And, and it was, it was tough for us making transition, but, um, you know, I'm a big fan of organic growth and, 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 uh, you know, making it about the products and, uh, versus, you know, just the marketing. And, um, and so we, we definitely grew slowly. Um, and then we did end up taking a big investment to, uh, move a few doors down to a bigger site and built a new facility, uh, we uh, basically more than doubled in size and uh, and had a bigger tap room. We knew that that tap room needed to be kind of the epicenter of our brand. Okay. And um, we wanted to create a destination for folks who are traveling through Huntsville or, you know, we're on a brewery tour or a brewery cruise, that sort of thing. And, and, uh, and, uh, but in the back of our minds, um, we're still a manufacturer and, um, you know, we're statewide in Alabama, we're in Mississippi and we're gradually trying to grow the brand throughout the Southeast. And, uh, and so we know that it's a volume game, you know, and, and, uh, we're in a, a red ocean, you know, there's tons of competition and, uh, and big players. And, uh, sure. so it's, it's, it's a tough deal. We can't just, we have to have something unique and, uh, and with the craft beer wave, the way it's been, um, you know, there's, there's more educated brewers now there's, there's more educated staff and experience, uh, that have, uh, done a lot and seen a lot. And, uh, so there's a bigger pool right now than there used to be on the lower craft side, the micro brewer side. And, uh, so for us, we know we have to stick to distribution as the highest thing that we can get to because the tap room has a ceiling. There's only so sure. many seats here, but we can grow this brand to a Southeastern brewery where we're distributing throughout the Southeast. And, uh, so, you know, in my mind, what, what seals that is quality of the product. And, uh, mm. and so that's, you know, we've always driven towards that as our, as that's at the peak of our business plan is the quality. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, I would say it's easier for Budweiser to be, um, consistent than a craft brewery. Um, but we can beat them on quality, you know, yeah. and, uh, and then consistency comes at us being as good as we can be. And, um, and, uh, you know, but, money solves a lot of problems <laughs> yeah. for uh, quality and consistency. And so but we, you know, we've done a great job and we've got a great team um, that uh, focuses specifically on that quality control. And, and uh, I think it's paid off and I think it's, you know, it's going to win out in the end for us is, is that we're going to be able to grow the brand based on our reputation. Heck yeah. Yeah. You think about someone like Budweiser, they're, they're a good example of, 
the average product for the average person, right? Mm-hmm. And once somebody takes that mountain, for everybody else that tries to play in that game, it's a race to the bottom. Right. You know, like if you found a way to create an average product for the average person, it means the quality is not that great because you wanted it to be pleasing to everybody. Yeah. And you're likely doing it at a low cost. And it's really hard to crest that mountain. But there's this whole other side of business, which is a specific price, a specific product for a specific group of people. Yep. You could still be best in class in, you yes. know, and make a really great uh, business with really healthy margins and all that kind of stuff. And that's what yes. I love about the craft brewery is saying like, we're not trying to be the average product that you would just think about last minute for the ball game or whatever. Right. You're looking for the people that love beer. Yes. And they would know the difference between this beer and that beer. And um, that is and, so cool. Yeah. We want to give some local pride to the, to the folks around here and, and uh, say like, Oh, let me take you to this place. It's a really cool, yeah. you know, really good beer, world-class beer right here in town. And I get that from a lot of folks that come back. They're like, you know, Huntsville needed this, you know, like this is one yeah. thing we didn't have. And that, that was a big deal for us is that, you know, for me uh, being here for 30 plus years, um, I wanted to create something that was unique and was fun for a lot of people. And we're, we're family friendly here. And like, uh, that's a huge deal for people to bring their kids and we got a, a city park right beside us. And, you know, it's just, it's really uh, been a, a big deal for the community to have something fun to go do on the weekends and stop by and have a beer after work, you know, yep. meet with some friends or coworkers and that sort of thing. And, and, uh, and you know, the city in turn has gotten behind it um, because uh, it does promote um a good outlet for entertainment uh, for new job growth here. So that's, that's been a big part of it too. That we've got a lot of support from top down. So, yeah, man, we do the same. So we have uh, in Atlanta, there's tons of breweries, but finally some have popped up around my little suburb of Atlanta. And so we have like line Creek brewery down the road. That's done the same thing. And just mm-hmm. for the community, love going there bringing the kids they have stuff to play with outside and now you're starting to see them like at the golf pro shop selling that beer and at certain restaurants and uh same thing in athens uh there's sweetwater have you heard of sweetwater oh yeah okay so same thing there started in athens was just an athens thing and then slowly started gaining kind of market share in the southeast um and it makes me think of an axiom i heard a, a while back that was like first own First, be the best on your side of the street. Yeah. Then be the best on the street. Then be the best in the town. Then be the best in the region. And you just kind of go from, you know, securing almost uh, concentric rings outward. And it sounds like you guys are doing the same thing. Like, how do we be the best in Huntsville? Yep. How do we be then the best in Alabama? And yep. then how do we be best in the region? Yes. Right. Um, yeah, that's a great axiom there. I like that. <laughs> yeah, it's helped us as well. Like, man, if you can't own your side of the street you're not going to own the region yep. right yep. um have you guys had any are there any kind of strategic thinking that you've done towards that in terms of pace of growth or how you want to capture some of that brand recognition and things like that yeah the um you know it's become a local breweries game um right now so there, as you said there's more breweries popping up on every corner uh, and people enjoy that. People appreciate that. I appreciate that. I'll, I'll stop by, you know, my local one that's near me. Um, and, uh, so it's, it's becoming harder and harder to become a regional brewery, but I, I think, 
you know, if you have a product that is unique, that um, that is shelf stable, and uh, and you know, shipping is a big deal in this industry because we're dealing with cold products and a live product. You know, we mm. don't pasteurize right now, and and uh, so getting that product from our place onto the shelf and having it have an extended shelf life of you know three to six months um very difficult to do sure uh, and so you know in our current distribu- distributors we're, we're shipping once a week uh to every once every three weeks some and uh but we rarely keep one month's worth of product at any warehouse and so being able to manage that is going to be the next task that we have to face and getting that distribution network to where we can get all of these guys, the product and know they can trust that it's going to be one shelf stable. And then two people are going to buy it. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so then comes the marketing side and, um, and you, I think that's more where your question lies is like, how do we get that on the shelf? And, and um, we've done, uh, I think one of our best attributes is our art and our creative side, whether it's either the style of the beer being creative or the artwork but that's supporting it and the marketing. And uh, we've got a wonderful team here doing that. And, uh, and I think it can catch on. There is heavy competition, but for us, you know, it's, it, it is going to be, I think it's a long game. I think it's, uh, yeah. hey, we've got to build this brand organically. And maybe we hit a home run here or there and uh, gain a few more big distributors and get uh, some unique products on the shelf that can take off. Yes. Man, it's so interesting. I wonder what you think about this. You know the beer industry is so much better than I do. So this is just an outside observer noticing a little bit of the growth of Sweetwater in our area. But there was a time, like when they came out, I think it was Tropicalia, that you could never get it. Like whatever quantity that they were putting out there was limited enough. It wasn't because like it was selling like wildfire, but it was just limited enough that like I just remember some friends coming to my house and they were like, dude, I was able to snag some Tropicalia at this, you know, small place, whatever. You're talking about Creature Comforts, right? Sorry, sorry. I'm talking about Creature Comforts. You're right. You're right. Creature Comforts. That Tropicalia, excellent example. Uh, Yeah. And that that shortage. The shortage. Yes. And, uh, oh, you got to have it. And then uh, it only comes out this this time of the year, you know. Yeah. um, Hop Slam is the same way, uh, you know, they were uh, with Bell's um, Brewery and, uh and once a year, it's like everybody's clamoring to get it. It's the best IPA or it's the best, you know, uh, of this style. And, um, yeah, getting that kind of recognition goes a super long way. Yeah. It's just and, an inter- uh, it was just an interesting approach, like creating a scarcity to, to drive some yes. demand um, versus just trying to get as much demand, as much supply as possible. Right. Yeah. I don't know if y'all have y'all experimented with that at all. Is that is, well, a different way? Yeah, it is a little bit different here. Um, we don't have um, like uh, we've 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 got some other friend breweries that we uh, that we uh, watch and uh, try and learn from. But uh, if you've got a market um, that's willing to show up and stand in line for a product all day long to get be the first to get this or you know to get it at all, I mean you're you're sitting on a gold mine. Yeah. And, um, and Huntsville's never really had that. Um, we've tried to engender some of that, um, with, we have some high end products and 
and we'll sell out and uh and but there's a cap on that it's yeah, not yeah and uh one thing about the tropicalia and the hop slam is that they can make a lot and they have national national more regional or national distribution and and um but they're, they say, oh, you're going to get 10 cases, you're going to get 20 cases and go to each distributor and map it out. And, um, and then it generates that, you know, that, uh, hey, we've only got 10 cases, y'all better get here when you can. Yeah. And, um, and so we've, uh, we've experimented with it, you know, had some success here and there. Um, but Alabama doesn't quite have that, uh, that Makes kind sense. of word of mouth, you know, uh, hey, we got to get this now. We might get uh, 50 to 100 folks that come in, uh, but getting 50,000, they're like, hey, I get this. That's like that next level product. And and, uh, and a lot of it's just marketing and word of mouth and getting it sure. out there. Sure. Because you know, I think it we have takes the quality. Time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, it might even, it, it doesn't sound like it's even a quality thing versus, you know, someone else's that did that. It sounds like the culture. Yes. Doesn't naturally kind of produce people with with more exclusive tastes mm-hmm. and liking that kind of, you know, scarce demand. Yeah. Um, so that that is interesting. I, I'm also curious when COVID hit, how much did that affect y'all's business? Was it an oh shit moment or, man, we were able to operate, you know, in some critical ways that weren't were unaffected and we were okay? How, what was that like for you guys? Yeah. Um, yeah. A year ago, right now, it was starting to, you know, percolate through the news. And uh, for us, my wife's in biochemistry, and she's like, "This is serious. You know, you need to pay attention." And and so, you know, we had some some time to plan a little bit, and I knew it was going to be rough. Um, but you know, we basically got shut down uh, from inside sales um, for about six weeks. And, uh, so it, it dramatically affected our, uh, retail business. Sure. Um, and then on our distribution side, we were about 50, 50, uh, draft versus package. And then all of a sudden that switched to 90% or almost a hundred percent package. Yeah. And so then came, um, you know, well, in the beginning, uh, we decided we have a distillery as well. And, um, so we decided to switch all of our production to hand sanitizer. And, uh, so we made a full transition. Yep. And, uh, and, uh, by doing that, uh, we teamed up with a lot of local corporations. Uh, they donated money to buy the sanitizer from us and donated it to first responders all throughout North Alabama and um, it went to law enforcement, hospice, and uh, we donated over a thousand gallons uh, those first few months. And wow. it was a, a huge deal. Um, and, uh, you know, we felt really good about that. And, and it kept the team working. And, uh, you know, we didn't have to lay anybody off right then. And, and um, you know, despite being down, you know, 20, 25% on the retail side, um, you know, we were able to survive and, you know, we took every advantage on the PPP loans sure. and, and got, uh, state grants and things like that. And, uh, that made a huge difference as well. Um, but it was, it was a tough battle. Um, 
you know, daily regulation changes and things we were having to, to do. And, you know, it, it wore my staff out a good bit, but um, it, it brought us so much together as a team. Mm. I'll, I'll never forget how, uh, how much we all, you know, did what it took to get all this stuff done. I mean, we were, we were working 90 hour weeks, um, making sanitizer at, at the beginning and, and just doing whatever it took to get it done. And, and, uh, and like, I, I can't commend the team enough to, for pulling that off. And, um, so it was definitely my favorite time, um, at the brewery from wow. that perspective. Wow, man. That is really inspiring to hear. I mean, I remember hearing, you know, small stories about like, hey, this, you know, this company is re, you know, repurposing this to be able to help out with this. Yeah. Um, but I never thought about a brewery being able to make hand sanitizer. That is, that is amazing. Very inspiring. Yeah, yeah it was. It was a neat process, and and um, you know, it's you never know you know what it's going to take but it kind of felt like a wartime scenario where yeah. we were having to you know be creative and and the government you know allowed us to use our distilling equipment for that purpose and they gave us the the right to do it and and uh, gave us the recipe and everything was approved and, and um so yeah it was a, it was a neat time and um and I, i'd like to think it made a difference so Oh, I can't imagine. It absolutely did. Yeah. Uh, and it's it, I think it's fitting for you to use a wartime analogy. That's what we were using with a lot of our clients. So we do um, we do coaching for fast growing companies, but particularly for people development leaders and all that kind of stuff. And we kept talking to, we kept talking about his foxhole coaching. Like, all right, you're in a foxhole right now. Like, yeah. the game has to change in your mind. We've got to start playing like we're in a war yeah. instead of during a peacetime. Right, and you got to shift mentality. You got to shift attitude. You got to shift focus. Um, and nobody wants a war. Nobody would want COVID to happen again. But we can talk about some of the positives. And some of the positives is war has a way of bringing people together. Yep. You know, it has as a way of bringing your team together, creating an you know urgency, importance, things like that. And it sounds like you navigated with your team well that you guys were closer after than you were before. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Yeah, it's probably my proud moment, you know, as, as the manager here, and um, and that that goes back to that community, like you know, everybody yeah. coming together and and um, helping one another out and getting through a difficult time together. Oh man, that is so cool to hear. Yeah. Uh, so, what does give me a sense of what the business looks like now? It's one look. One location, correct. You have your tap room, mm-hmm. your your production facility. Mm-hmm. How how many employees? You know, like where where's the business at now? Yeah, we uh we expanded again in 2017, and uh, we doubled the size of our manufacturing facility, and uh, we're a little over 20,000 square feet now. We've got about uh, usually around 25 to 30 employees, uh, depending on the season, and. Um, and uh we were um you know we've kind of last year uh obviously we saw a pretty steep decline on the retail side but uh the manufacturing side grew again and uh, so that's always optimistic and you know we're seeing um uh, smaller percentage growth now, but still every year it's like we we do we know we have a lot of room to grow and um and so we just 
we just invested in eight more tanks uh, wow. for this year. I just think uh, I, I feel like uh, the country is ready for uh, a party. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, um, I, th I think, uh, you know, we want to be poised to, to take advantage of um, sort of this rebound from this, these difficult times. Absolutely. Man, couldn't have said a better best, uh, a better, <laughs> the country is ready for a party. <laughs> and you, what you want is, uh, is them holding your beer in their yeah. hands, right? Yeah, I'm ready to support it. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. What is, what, what would you say is the most challenging aspect of your leadership right now with where the com company's at? Yeah. Uh, you know, the most challenging is is probably you know coming up with you know this creative um, product development line and making sure we stay relevant. I think that's um, you know something I learned early on. It's like, hey, if you're not rolling something new out every year, you mm. know you're quickly going to be forgotten. And um, and you know we might maintain, but you know. Uh, you know, I'm trying to grow this business um, and uh, and keep things exciting for everybody. And you know, my team loves it. You know, they love to be creative and and do fun stuff. And it and it's it's fun to, to to direct the team, but at the same time, it creates a ton of decisions. And um, and you've got to be extremely critical uh, and uh, make sure that you're doing everything you can to have a successful rollout of something new and different. And and, uh, and it also means that something maybe else has to give, uh, that might yeah. be an older product or something that's, you know, you know, declined for whatever reason, uh, gone out of fashion. And, um, sometimes it's even out of your control. Like your distributor says, Hey, we can only support four products now, you know, or, you know, we're, we're, we're cutting back this year. Our inventory is going down to, you know, uh, we want, you know, five flagships at most and things like that. And, um, so, you know, making those, uh, you know, plan and executing that plan, uh, every year. And, you know, we even make changes throughout the year. Um, you know, it, it, you know, the market always tells you what it wants. You know, you can't always dictate sure, <laughs> yeah. marketing works up to a certain extent and sometimes it backfires, but, um, um, but you know, you, you can only do so much if, if the market responds well, you know, you have to be able to react on that too. So, mm. yeah, I'm curious for, for your context, many companies that thrive on creativity and innovation, uh, can run into the issue of chasing the new shiny object mm -hmm. instead of doubling down on the thing that really is working best and, and keeping focus concentrated does that, how does that work in your industry? Like, is it always a good thing to be in the kitchen creating and coming up with new stuff or is that ever like a distraction or? Yeah, I think it can be. Um, and, uh, you can throw a lot of money at, at new products when, you know, if you just only supported, uh, your tried and true, you know, you yeah. would have, you would have maintained on that front and, and, um, you know, you, at some point you're just eating yourself if you're not careful and, um, and so we have to we have to be very careful on the styles and our portfolio selection and how it fits into everything. And okay, this it's an IPA, but it's different, you know. And so it, mm. hopefully it won't interfere with these other sales of these products. 
and uh, so it can happen. It can it can fall apart uh, uh, quickly, and uh, even though you've thought about it as much as you've thought about it, you know, yeah, um, you can't uh, control sometimes how the market uh, reacts. Do you guys have kind of like a creative cap where you're saying, hey? We only introduce X amount of new beers per season or per year. Is there anything like that? Yeah. Um, and it's funny because, you know, we used to basically have free reign, do, you know, make whatever you want. We'll sell in the tap room. And, and then uh, that uh, eventually became like, okay, our cooler is filled with 45 different beers. You know, we can't, we can't keep making whatever. And, um, and so now it's, it's very set on a calendar and, uh, we usually make, you know, we have one specialty product coming out that, uh, is small batch. It's just a test. And then we have, you know, three or four planned seasonals coming out throughout, uh, the month, you know, each calendar month. So everything's pretty, pretty, uh, straightforward now. Mm. And, um, but uh, yeah, we were we were running into a little bit of a problem there for a while. Yeah, I bet. Again, it's the, it's creative people create great problems, but they can still be problems. <laughs> yeah. It's like, man, that's where innovation comes from. But along the way to that innovation of finding what works, it can be a lot of headaches, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> With the mad scientists back there making decisions or creating new beers, and uh, they might be bored of doing yes. the same thing, but the market might love the tried and true. Yeah. And now you've got a little bit of an issue. Yeah. And, uh, we spend a lot of time, you know, looking at, at, uh, what's going to make our current products better. And, uh, because, you know, it's still a science industry. They're coming out with new stuff all the time. And, uh, and so we still get to play with them some and, and we get some joy out, out of, uh, Hey, this tastes really good. And it added another two weeks to shelf life. Like this is awesome. You know, and we do a lot of sensory control where we're mm. trying to maintain and monitor, you know, how these things age over time. Why do you think, why do you think your brewery and product has grown faster than so many of the others around you? Um, uh, I think it's due to quality. And, uh, so I, um, I sit down in the time a lot and talk to folks and, um, and we've tr- developed fans that, uh, that, you know, you know, we are what they go to the store to pick out and, um, mm. and, or they come by the tap room, you know, twice a week or, um, they're like, I come here because I know whatever I try on that board is going to be a good beer. It might not be my favorite thing, but, uh, it is, I know it's going to be a quality product. And that, that's something that, you know, I will not put a beer out there that I don't feel is a quality product. Yeah. So it makes me think about this question then. So do you guys have any keys in your mind to creating raving fans? Right. Cause that's what we're talking about is, having true diehard fans of your product first we we mentioned was quality right like that yeah. sounds like pillar number one is yes the quality is going to create raving fans is there anything else is the way that you talk with them communicate with them serve them like are there any keys because that's i know a lot of businesses hear that and mm-hmm. they hear you need to create raving fans and it's like okay but how you know like what's the yeah. way we're going to do it uh anything you could share on that yeah i think um I think uh, the raving fans is, is an awesome way to look at it because it's kind of like I was I was telling you our creature about the creature comforts with their tropicalia 
and bells with hop slam, we have not hit that nerve yet, but that's what, you know, every brewery wants that, you know? And so whether it's, um, you know, we're getting into, we do a lot of stuff with music. So music festivals cool. is a big thing for us. We, we sponsor a couple of them. We have live music here, uh, all throughout spring and summer. And, uh, and I feel like getting, uh, tied to something that people love and, uh, being a, a part of an experience for people is, is a huge yeah. thing. And, and I'm a big supporter of the arts and the community. And, uh, and I think that's part of it too. It's like, if everybody, you know, feels good about it, then you've, you've got that, that fan base. It's like, you know, this is awesome. Why would I, you know, these guys are killing it. And, uh, this is what I want to drink and I want to support them too, because, you know, they're behind a lot of this stuff that I love. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. I haven't thought about that before. The, uh, the coupling of an experience yes. with your product. Yeah. So that when you have that experience, you think of that product. When you have that product, you think of that experience. Like, yep. like I said, the one that's local to us, I, it's not known outside of our, probably our, our, our city right now, but I first started drinking when a friend, when we were playing golf and it was on the menu they, and I was like, what's this? And my friend's like, Oh, it's a local brewery down the road. You need to try it. And it became my favorite beer to have when I'm playing golf. And yeah. now I look for it. Like if I'm out yeah. at a restaurant or whatever, but I never would have found it until it made its way into that golf menu. Right. List. Yep. You know what I mean? Yep. Um, that's a really great example. That's awesome. Um, man, one more question and then we'll jump into the lightning round. Um, if you could wave a magic wand and see one problem you have or goal that you're going after just happen, what would you what would you wave your magic wand at as this co-founder? Hmm. That's a good one. Um, for me, I think, uh, I think it would have to be, um, you know, getting that, uh, product rec recognition on a large scale. Uh, we've been applying to these, uh, brew competitions. There's national competitions, uh, mm. a couple of big ones throughout the year and, and getting that recognition that, uh, we feel like we deserve for the quality of our products. I think that would really set off a spark with my team and with the community too. So I love that. Yeah. I was, I was even wondering the same thing. If you guys have entered any competitions or things like that. Um, so product recognition would be the thing. If you could wave a wand at it, yeah, man, that would just make life easier. Right. Oh yeah. That's awesome, man. This is so fascinating. Uh, this is my first brewery on the podcast and I'm having okay. a blast. This is nice. great. Uh, okay. Let's ask these five questions. We ask the same questions to, uh, all the founders on here. So first thing that comes to mind, no need to overthink it. Question number one, if you could ingrain one message into your entire organization, what would that message be? Yeah, I think um, for me, um, I'm huge on the team atmosphere and uh, working well together as a team, moving as a team. And I would want, you know, every decision that you make here, you're thinking about, is this the best thing for the product and the team? And like, is this, is what I'm doing right now the best thing for the team? Mm. And uh, just getting that in people's mindsets even more so than, I mean, we, we talk about it a lot, you know, but, um, but it's like, uh, you know, if there's one thing I want rolling around in their head, it's like, Hey, is this, is this what's best for everybody right now? And making sure we're all on that same page, driving that train. 
Love it. Yeah, it's that we before me kind of idea, right? Yep. It just a lot of good stuff happens downhill when we have that attitude. Yes. <laughs> Number two, what is the single best advice you've ever gotten about growing your best uh, about growing your business, and what was the worst? Yeah. So uh, back in 2017, we switched from bottles to cans, and um, you know when somebody suggested cans would be a good idea, there was some prestige behind bottles. Yeah. Like that was the classic way Belgian beers, German beer, beers, they taste better out of a glass. Um, we, you know, are like, hey, cans are going to be so much better for us in the long run. And sure enough, I mean, it, it meant it was a 25% jump for us when we, when we switched because it, um, it, they were cheaper, cheaper to ship. Uh, actually better for the beer quality. <laughs> like uh, really? we, had, we had no idea. And then um, you can get more, sh- more on the shelf at, at your local grocery store. So like you can stack them up and, uh, and that means a whole lot because when these uh, get merch guys come in and they put your product on the shelf, um, it allows them to double up. And if they're only coming in once a day and somebody already pulls through your product, uh, then your shelf is empty and there's nothing they can, the store will do about it. You know, it's, mm. they've got to get these merchandisers in to fill the shelves. And so it just gave us more exposure and more product on the shelf. And uh, it's just made the huge difference. You know, that was, and I, I was trying to think who, who, who told us that. And, uh, but I think we were, we, you know, mulling the idea around, but that was definitely the best thing we ever did for our business. Heck yeah. Was there, has there been any advice that you've intentionally ignored? Um, intentionally ignored. Um, yeah, uh, I ignore a lot, um, (laughs) because everybody and their brother thinks they know what's best for, uh, the way something looks or tastes. And like, you know, I only drink porters, you know, like, you know, you guys need to do this and it's like, okay, well, you're in the half a percent of the world that loves porters, you know, and like, um, but uh, so I ignore a lot of advice on art and on uh, beer styles and things like that. I try and, you know, I I take the advice of my brewers and my marketing directors, but um, uh, I think the the worst uh, advice I ever got was, you know, in some of these people that were hiring that uh, just because they loved craft beer would make them a good fit for this job, you know? Mm. And, um, and that is, you know, 100% not the case. And, uh, and um, now, you know, we accept in all applications, but just because you're a huge craft beer fan doesn't mean, you know, you're the best fit for the job and vice versa. doesn't, you know, sure. somebody who's has, I can't drink because I'm gluten-free. So it doesn't mean they're not going to be a good uh, employee or understand the products. Um, but uh, so getting past that was a, was a big hurdle for us and, uh, you know, making sure we're making the best uh, hire possible. Uh, it makes total sense. Yeah. You know, I think about it like in the sports world, w- one thing you would assume is if you were a fantastic player, you would be a great coach. Right. But you see so many times like, man, they didn't make that transition well, you know? Yes. Yeah. And then you have coaches that you're like, I don't even think you made it past high school in terms of playing. <laughs> right. But you're a phenomenal coach. Yep. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. It's got to be the same in business, you know, where, yeah, you yeah. love the product, but it doesn't mean you're a hard worker or fit with the culture or have right. the skill we need in this, you know, exactly. this department. Yep. 
That's awesome. All right. Question number three. What causes you the most stress or worry as the leader of your organization or as one of the leaders of your organization? Um, most stress, I would probably say uh, just keeping the team motivated and moving together in the same direction. Uh, make sure that I'm not losing one person. Because if you lose one, you, you tend to lose more than like it kind of drags the herd in a different direction. Yeah. And there's a lot of key figures here where if 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 we're not all like behind it uh, and supporting it, then it can fall apart pretty quickly and uh, lead to a you know a poor outcome. And uh, so that's you know I'm kind of like the the herd dog, you know, I'm trying to make sure, it, you know, are you okay with this? Are you okay with this? Making sure everybody's, you know, I get feedback from everybody and that everybody has a voice and that we're all, you know, moving together. Cause uh, we've, we've had a few instances where it just fell apart, you know, cause yeah. we didn't, didn't have all the support we needed. Mm, totally get that. Number four, what's your BHAG, your big, hairy, audacious goal? <laughs> So um, we're we're a big fan of uh, ESOPs, employee-owned, uh, stock-owned uh, companies, and um, and we've got some experience with that. Some of our founders um, and our investors, and uh, I would love to see that kind of uh, us transition to that kind of company with a you know a strong regional presence uh, in the market and uh, and have a team that that wants to stick together. That's one of the you know. The, the pillars of the ESOPs is that, you know, you really need to have that team that's going to ride it out. Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, in five years, if, if we were, if we were there, I'd be extremely happy. And, uh, and we're trying to create that mentality right now anyways, and yeah reward everybody. If we all profit, you know, are we all profit if, if the company's doing well? Heck yeah. Love that model. Yeah. Awesome. Number five. If you could hop into a DeLorean, go <laughs> back to the past, and you get to tell your past self one thing out the driver's side window. So you're not stopping. You're not changing things. You don't get to have a long conversation. You get to say one thing out the driver's side window. When would you go back in your past, and what would you tell yourself? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so when um, would probably be – one right before one of our transitions of growth and uh, being fastest to market is is my biggest you know uh, whisper to myself is like hey you need to do what you're doing and make it big and fast and mm. um, and because there was a lot of competition um, but being bigger faster made a difference um, yeah. for us and uh, for some of our competitors too. And uh, we were a little slow. I like the organic baby step growth, but um, if we had pushed it a little bit more and maybe been a little bit more risky, um, I think it would have benefited us uh, faster, you know, in the long run. And uh, Heck yeah. Love it. Yeah. Awesome, buddy. Well, this has been really fascinating getting to know your business and even uh, from the outside looking in, getting to hear how an organic grassroots business can really grow and take hold in that ever increasing footprint. Uh, so man, thank you for coming on here, taking the time to share your story and your wisdom. Uh, it's been truly great having you. Awesome. Thanks, Drew. Appreciate it. Yes, sir. Founders, thanks for listening. 
We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results. 